Everybody and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Jim Marty from sunny and warm Longmont, Colorado, where it's a beautiful day in late May. I've got my partner in crime, Larry Mishkin, up in Chicago. How you doing, Larry? Jim, I'm doing great. Always nice to hear from you, and I am pleased to be able to say that we also have a beautiful, sunny, bright day here in Chicago. And although the uh, outlook for the entire weekend is not necessarily so great, we're sure enjoying today. Well, we are fortunate to have a a guest today, a wonderful attorney, Henry Baskerville, who will be joining us in just a minute. But before we do, I need to ask Larry if he uh, if he did his homework assignment, because I did mine. I listened to the Ithaca May of 77 show, and it is every bit as wonderful as Larry mentioned last week. In fact, I just listened to the uh, Scarlet Begonias Fire on the Mountain sequence just before we came on the air. And I asked Larry, if he would, if he should could listen to for his homework, the uh, fish post hiatus, I believe August of 2009 at Red Rocks, Colorado, a character zero where Billy Kreutzman of the Grateful Dead sat in with uh, Fishman. Larry, did you get your homework done? You know, Jim, I haven't had to say this in about 35 years, but the dog ate my homework. Um, so I apologize that I let you down on this one, but I can assure you. Uh, since I don't want to have to go through this again, that by this time next week, I will be more than ready to talk to you about it. Very good. Well, we'll give you a rain check on that and pick it up on our next show. In the meantime, I'd like to turn our attention to our, our guest today, Attorney Henry Baskerville from Denver, Colorado. How are you doing, Henry? I'm doing well. Thanks a lot for having me. Excited to be here. Very good. Glad to have you. <clears throat> Can you tell us a little bit about your law practice uh, and your relation to cannabis, and more recently, hemp and CBD? Sure. So um, I work at, I'm a, one of four owners of a small boutique law firm in Denver, Colorado called Fortis Law Partners, and we do a lot of work in the cannabis industry. Um, our firm is set up to really, our bread and butter is working with small and emerging companies, no market companies, and um, and in that fit, we do a lot of work with cannabis companies, not not exclusively, but a good chunk of our practice is with cannabis companies. And we have sort of three different primary practice area groups. We have a, a corporate group, we have an employment group, and we have a litigation group. I run the litigation group. I'm also the head of our cannabis practice. Um, and those are the three areas that we think can really are, are needed to help small businesses the corporate group can help them form the company and do their agreements. The employment can help hiring and firing employees. And my group is needed helps with, um, you know, demand letters or litigation if necessary. And I also serve as outside general counsel to probably more than a dozen cannabis companies, um, more on the hemp side these days than, than on the marijuana side by happenstance, really, more than by design. 
Um, I'm also a, a big fan of um, CBD. I take it on a rate on a daily basis. Um, you know, have been also known to enjoy the marijuana here and there as well. Now, very interesting about your practice. Um, I also do a lot of expert witness and testimony um, in disputes in the cannabis industry, whether it's in state court, I've testified in federal tax court, uh, mediation, arbitration. I'll ask, turn it over to you and Larry as attorneys on why you think the cannabis injury is so litigious. Uh, my, my point would be, you know, it's a fairly young industry. The participants many times are young, and many times they came from the black market and are not used to having written contracts. But I'll let uh, Henry, you take it, and then Larry, you chime in too, because this is a really hot topic right now. Sure. So I would certainly dovetail with um, with what you said. I think that some of it definitely has to do with people in the industry being uh, unfamiliar with written contracts or more more familiar with doing business without written contracts, whether that's because they're just, you know, young and new to the business area or whether that's because they were previously um, part of the black market where, you know, contracts aren't typically used. Who knows? It probably depends on the person. But I think that's a big part of it. I think that it's also, um, you know, I've seen, I don't like to point fingers or anything, but I've seen some sort of mediocre lawyering where people just aren't um, crossing their T's and dotting their I's for cannabis clients. I don't know if it's just because they're trying to go quickly or keep costs down. Um, so there's some of that. And, you know, I think it's also that there's, there's this perception that there's just so much can so much money to be made in the cannabis industry, which is not, as we know it true. Um, but, you know, there certainly is money to be made, but it's, it's not just the windfall of making money hand over fist that people believe it to be. And so they, they come in with these lofty ideas that they're going to put in a few thousand dollars and come out a multimillionaire. And when that doesn't happen, they start pointing fingers at each other. So I think that has something to do with it. And then of course the price fluctuates a lot, which always leads to disagreements about, um, you know, contracts and, and who should have made profit and so forth. So I think that has, that has a lot to do with it. With it as well. well that's that's uh, very interesting. Henry and the truth of the matter is, my, my first response was going to be, I haven't really seen an uptick in litigation on the cannabis side. Uh, my litigation practice still is primarily uh, limited to non-cannabis uh, matters, and I'm going to say I think that's probably because our industry is so new that people really haven't had a whole lot of time to even have disputes yet. Um, you know, everything is just starting to come online. I do have one person who contacted me uh, because they may want to, you know, send, have me send a demand letter to a, a, a group that applied for a dispensary, and they may claim that they're entitled to some ownership of it. I don't know. We'll take a look at it and see. Um, but there hasn't really been a whole lot. And, you know, I, I think the other part of it is that, you know, at least in Illinois, given the the, uh, the newness of the market and where people are, other than the, the well-established MSOs, you know, what I learned, Jim, and you know, back in 2008, 9, and 10, is that litigation to some degree is a privilege. It's very expensive, and a lot of people who go through life just don't have the money or the time and the ability to be able to go out and litigate. Um, and as the market turns, more and more people, for the downside, more and more people are willing to walk away from disputes than spend a lot of money on their lawyers. Um, 
in this industry, I think that there's some of that, right? We have all these people who are all new applicants, or they're all out trying to hustle as much money as they can get to to get their business operation up and running. And if there's a, a you know a mistake on a contract or whatever, a lot of times I think from their perspective, it's just easier to sit down and try and make it right than to uh, spend all that money on litigation. Now, part of that I'd like to think is you know that that's inherent in the cannabis industry, but obviously. Um, you know, your experiences and Henry's experiences and others' experiences tell us that, you know, at some point the uh, the honeymoon effect wears off and it's just a regular business and you got people going at it. Um, but in terms of what I've seen from my clients, uh, I would also very much agree with what Henry said that number one, probably the biggest issue I have is people coming in who have no idea how to run a business. You know, they may have tons of experience with marijuana, but they've never run a business before. They don't know what an operating agreement is. They don't know what an LLC is. They don't know anything, and all of a sudden, what they're going to be in charge of running a company that, if it's successful, you know, will have a value, you know, of a couple of million dollars. That's not a good fit. Um, similarly, I think people come in with extremely unrealistic expectations, and we do our best to try to tamp those down. The first couple of times we talk to people, you know, by letting them know, yes, there's money to be made, but there's businesses that fail in this industry just like any other. If you want to go check out the statistics online, you can find out how many of them do fail. Um, you know, and, and that's just the way it is. Not everybody who invests in cannabis is going to walk away a millionaire. And I think that, uh, that what Henry says is right, that sometimes people's like, well, but it must have been your fault, that, you know, because everybody told me I was going to be a millionaire. So, um, you know, as a litigator, I have to say from a business perspective, um, I'm looking forward to an opportunity to get involved in those types of cases. Uh, as a big fan of the cannabis industry, I'm hoping that, you know, people can find a way to be able to resolve their disputes without wasting a lot of time and money on lawyers. But, We'll see what happens. Yes, Henry, any comments on this before we move on to another subject? One comment I would make is I would say that I've seen um, a fair amount more litigation and sort of bad practices and shady behavior in the hemp industry. And I don't say that to, to besmirch the hemp industry. As I said, I do a lot of work in it, and, and I'm a big fan of CBD, and I, I take it on a daily basis personally. Um and I, I'm not entirely sure why that is. I have a, I have a theory. Uh, I think part of the theory is that, um, you know, a lot of people want to get into the cannabis industry, whether it's in, in THC or CBD or, and the problem is that legalized marijuana is such a heavily regulated industry in, in every state in Colorado included. You have to go through detailed background checks. If you've got a felony conviction, particularly felony drug conviction, you're just barred from the industry. And so as a result of the fairly heavily regulation on the, on the marijuana side, people who want to get into the cannabis industry but maybe have a less than perfect background are all funneled into the, to the hemp side, which I think leads to a higher percentage of, you know, unsavory characters behaving poorly. Um, and, and so I just get clients who, you know, they, they're trying to do a deal and of course they're putting together the deal on text message and, and sending hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to a broker via a deal that they've reached on a text message and the guy just disappears with the money or, you know, people just stealing other people's companies, just crazy stuff. Um, and I think some of that just has to do with, like we said before, is unsophisticated business people coupled with, with um, people who are used to behaving and um, practicing in, in the black market and, trying to bring those the way they used to do it to what's now a legal industry. And so I think 
as more and more states start to regulate hemp and, and implement, it, implement the 2018 fire bill, and, and as further regulation comes in, I think that hopefully we're going to see some of that shadiness leave the industry. Yes, I agree with all of that. Uh, I'm doing more and more work here in the Colorado hemp industry myself, uh, extractors, uh, retailers, online sales, and uh, hemp farmers. And right now the hemp farmers are very, very unhappy. Uh, they don't even know if they want to plant a crop in 2020 because so many of them are still sitting on their 2020 harvested biomass. And, you know, they have hundreds of thousands of dollars into the hemp biomass. A year ago, that biomass was selling for 30 to $40 a pound. This year, some farmers are lucky to even get offered a dollar. Henry, what's your opinion on what's going on with the hemp industry here in Colorado and nationally? Yeah, I, I, I would echo this, those exact same uh, sentiments. My, I've got clients who I was just having a conversation today with a hemp farmer who said, we put our seeds in the ground today, last year, and now we're debating whether we should do it again. And they, they've ultimately decided that they're going to, but they're still sitting on thousands of pounds of, of biomass and smokable hemp that they haven't been able to sell. Um, and it, it's just a problem that, you know, a couple of years ago, there was never enough biomass for the extractors. And as a result of the sort of glut and biomass, the, the price of CBD used to just, it was, it was incredible how much it would go up and down. It would, you know, after the harvest, when there was biomass available, CBD would be fairly cheap, you know, couple months later when no, no, nobody had any biomass and the extractors couldn't even get their, their machines working, CBD was extremely expensive. And so people came and filled that void and grew a lot of hemp. And I think they had, many people had a very, pretty good crop last year. And then meanwhile, while they were growing this crop all through last summer and the fall and really up until now, the price of CBD, um, various extracts has just completely fallen through the floor and it's, you know, lost 80% of its value. And so people have, like you said, struggled to sell their products. But, you know, I was talking to a guy today who said that their product is, you know, they, they do a lot of organic growing and they were able to get about 60 bucks a pound for biomass last year and about six to $700 a pound for smokable hemp. Now, you know, they're looking at selling that same product for $10 a pound for biomass and maybe a hundred for smokable hemp when they could have got 700 last year. And so it's a big question mark because they put a lot of time and effort in this. They're still sitting on thousands of pounds. And as people start growing and the 2020 crop becomes available for sale next fall, anything left over from 2019 is going to be effectively worthless. Yes, and um, harvested hemp biomass, as I've learned, is in a very unstable um, state. It can uh, go moldy on you. It can get mildew. So the farmer is almost forced to, you know, he has two choices to destroy it <clears throat> or put another, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 into getting his crop extracted. So at least it's in a more stable format as CBD oil. Um, my concern for my farmer clients is, hey, you know, gee, uh, Joe Farmer, if you do spend all that money to the extractor, you know, are you going to be able to sell it? Will there be an offtake on the other end? Um, I really hammer the extractors, and they're my clients, but I'll say, 
you know, where are you at getting the offtake? Why aren't you getting contracts in with deposits so that you can lighten the burden on the farmer on the extraction? You know, the farmer will wait until the end product of the CBD or CBG oil sells. But why is it always up to the farmer to come up with all the money to grow, all the money to harvest, and now all the money to extract? So it's a difficult situation. I'm trying to work through it with my clients. I think actually this week we did manage to move about 100,000 pounds of good quality hemp biomass. But again, uh, the best deal we could get from an extractor was the farmer has to come up with $300,000 of cash to get it extracted. So it's a tough situation. It'll work itself out. Uh, one of my many opinions with CBD, CBG, all the, all the cannabinoids is a lot of times, and you talk about unscrupulous characters, a lot of times the end product is no good. So when you, the customer goes to the CBD store, buys online CBD products, and he spends his $30, $40, $50 on some products, and there's no effect. And there's no effect because by the time the processor and the manufacturer and the packager are done, there's very little CBD, live CBD in that end product. So the customer buys it, nothing happens. Well, you not only just lost the customer of CBD for life, you probably lost all his friends and family that he knows too. So the answer to that, in my opinion, is these end user consumer CBD products have to really up their game and the amount of CBD and CBG that's contained in those products. Because uh, Henry, you said you use CBD, I do too. I've got some wonderful, wonderful CBD products that are very strong uh, for sleep. It just, you know, puts you out with a deep sleep with wild dreams. Um, so anyway, I've been doing a lot of the talking. I'll let um, Henry and Larry take over for a few minutes. Yeah. So um, this is thanks. Uh, this is Henry again. So I, I would again echo the same sentiments. And another problem that part of the problem that my clients are seeing is just the the testing facilities just are can vary so greatly. Um, my clients say that. You know, they get tests, they get certificates of authenticity done, and from one lab to another, they're seeing like 20% variations in um, um, CBD content, other content of minor cannabinoids, THC content. Uh, some places are finding heavy metal, some aren't. And so it's really hard to tell, and it's hard to do business when you have a product, you get it tested, your COA says one thing, you send it to a customer and they, they get a COA that says something different. And so it's just, a, I don't know if it's because some of these labs are not properly cleaning their equipment between, I don't know if they're incompetent, they're using different um, ways of doing it. Uh, you know, the, the 2018 Farm Bill had some I, discussion about you know, uniform testing, but I think that's one of the things that the that the industry really needs, so that at least people can know that we're all talking about the same thing, and we're buying. You know, when we're agreeing to purchase a product, we know what's actually in it, um, because, like you said, that's a huge problem, and and one that needs to be solved quickly. I think take it a step further and say it's not just so much that we want the consumers to know what's in it. I'd like the police to know what's in it. I don't know about you, but we've had more than one occasion 
with clients who have had CBD packages confiscated. And conversations with the police on that point sometimes is like in the twilight zone. Well, counsel, I don't know how you consider and tell me it's not illegal. We tested it and we found THC. How much, officer? <laughs> well, you know, we found THC. That makes it illegal. No, it doesn't. And then I have to send their general counsel, literally the general counsel of the police department here, the farm bill with all the sections underlined and the accompanying Illinois legislation, you know, and you know, they said, well, okay, but, you know, you understand this may happen again because we can't tell what it is. So, you know, my right, response right. is, well, doesn't probable cause say you have to know? You're absolutely right, Larry. And, I mean, that's a huge problem because, you know, it's one thing if somebody decides that they're going to engage in illegal practices and, and you're going to, you know, you decide you're going to rob a bank, you, unless you're an idiot, you understand what the potential consequences are and you're taking that risk. Okay. But on the other hand, if you're trying to conduct legal business and sell a product that's legal under both state and federal law and you're shipping it in a legal way and yet if your product gets confiscated and potentially you're getting charged with crimes when you're trying to abide by the law, well, that's a problem because the laws should be something where you know if I step over here, I'm breaking the law and I'm willing to take that chance. But if I stay over here, I'm good. And so companies need to be able to understand that where the line is. And if the line's not clear because A, the cops don't know what they're talking about, or B, as we've seen in some of these recent cases, sometimes people are using different forms of testing. And as we know, you know, when when you test in a different way and you heat up the product, the THCA can get be converted to delta nine THC, which changes the content and different places are doing different things. Well, then that's a big problem when you have companies who are trying to do a legal business and abide by the laws and yet are still getting ensnarled by the police. Yes. Yes. It's, 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 it's just, it's true on every level. And it, it, it speaks to the need to have federal standards and, and, Federal education, federal employees need to know and understand the law and know what's different about the two. Uh, people at customs have to know this, right? The people at the IRS have to know this. People, you know, who run the banking system have to know this. And there's just hasn't been a lot of, you know, education of the people who need to be educated. And, you know, you're right. That's very disconcerting. It's one thing if you knowingly break the law, but when we can tell somebody, hey, look, this is a legal product now, you're good to go. And all of a sudden their truck gets pulled over in Idaho. You know, that's, there's no good answers except that, you know, well, in Idaho, apparently they follow their own laws. <laughs> and it is very frustrating. And it, it, is, it is a potential barrier for some people to getting into business just because there's this concern that anything that's cannabis, without bothering to understand the distinctions, um, you know, they just see that as a strike against them. And what bothers me about that is that I think there's lots of good people out there who could get into this industry. And we're going to sit here and talk about you know, a shortage of brokers and producers, and you're absolutely right. I, I've got clients calling me nonstop. That's, if I could give them the names of brokers or producers, I could retire tomorrow. I'd make enough money. They'd pay me anything for that information. They don't exist. We just can't find people who have the capacity to take this on. And I think that, you know, part of the problem is, is that people are reluctant to spend the money to build a processing facility if they're not quite sure, you know, if, if everybody's okay with it. Well, I have a story that is the exact opposite of the story Larry just told, that um, we have smokable hemp here in Colorado in abundance, and people are taking that smokable hemp to states that don't have adult-use 
cannabis and selling it as as marijuana. <laughs> so there's a another amusing twist to what's going on. Yeah, I, I shouldn't laugh, but that's like you know in high school when kids are selling bags of oregano. So anyway, let's uh, wrap it up and talk a few minutes about music because Henry has a very interesting background. Um, he's was he told us before the show he was in high school when Jerry Garcia died, so he missed a lot of the Grateful Dead. But he's a big fish fan, and Larry and I are huge fish fans as well, as are our children, our sons really love fish. In fact, um, my son Jack, as I mentioned before, is in a fish tribute band playing keyboards. Um, Henry, go ahead and uh, tell us some of your favorite stories of uh, being a fish fan. Well, that's right. So I got I um, went to school in Boston and, and really got into fish in college and um, and then toured and saw a number of shows after college. And unfortunately then, kind of right as I was leaving college, Fish took their first hiatus, and then, you know, between that, in the 2000s, I went and saw as many shows as I possibly could um, throughout the country and saw a bunch in Vegas, and then, thankfully, they're back, and um, a couple of the highlights of my life, I remember, um, we went and saw a tray tour in uh, 2001, I guess, after I graduated from college, and uh, all up the, the West Coast, and then came and saw three shows, I think three shows at Red Rocks, two or three. And I was, I went to BIA to pick up a friend uh, who was flying in to see the Red Rock shows and was walking across the the center area of BIA near the um, baggage claim to meet my friend. And I, it was just me. And I looked across and about 20 feet from me walking kind of in the same direction as me with Trey. And I went over and I said, Oh, Hey, you know, I, I, I don't want to bother you. I know you're probably here picking up some friends or family, but I just wanted to say I saw all the shows on the West Coast and I, you guys are really killing it. It was really such a great time. And he said, oh, thank you very much. And he said, what's your name? And I said, Henry. And we chatted for about 20 seconds. And I was like, oh, that was just so great. And so then I went and I met my friend at Baggage Claim. And I said, you're not going to believe this. I just met Trey. And he was like, no way, you're lying. And so then we're walking out after my friend gets his bag and we see Trey again. And he's like, hey, Henry, how you doing? And I was like, there, you see, there you go. And so he, I mean, it was not very nice to Trey to remember my name. It was only probably 15 minutes, but still, it made me look pretty cool in front of my friend. And then subsequently, I've got a friend who um, is good friends with Trey's dad and sits on the, Trey's dad sits on the board of a foundation that my friend created. Um, my friend is a, is world renowned for, uh, he's a doctor for neuroendocrine cancer, which is unfortunately the, the type of cancer that Trey's sister died from. And so Trey's family is very involved in, in my friend's foundation. And, and as I said, his dad sits on the board. And so in 2018, my friend was nice enough to ask me to go backstage. And it just so happened that Trey's dad was there at, at six. And so we hung out with Trey's dad the whole night. And of course got to meet Trey and, and Paige and Mike. And, and I sat and we went and and sat where they eat before the show. And John was in there holding court and I sat down and I said, I, you know, I don't mind. To, I don't want to interrupt your dinner. And he said, no, come on, sit with me. And I sat and talked with Fishman for like 30 minutes before the show. Normally before a fish show, I get kind of all nervous because I got to get to my spot and I just get, you know, and, and a lot of anticipation before the show, pre-show jitters. And I was like, I guess I don't really need to do that now. It's not like I'm a Mr. Show. The drummer's right here. 
Um, but John just couldn't have been, you know, the other guys were busy and I got a picture with Trey and so forth and didn't talk much. I sat there and chatted with John about politics and all other sorts of stuff for like half an hour. And he just couldn't have been a nicer guy. It was really a fun time. And then of course the, the show was great. I have to say, I love those kind of stories. When I was uh, first starting to see the, uh, the dead in the early 1980s, the Jerry Garcia band came and they played in, um, uh, Grand City, Illinois, which is just right on the other side of the river from St. Louis. Not the best of areas necessarily to go to, but he was playing in this tiny little club and a whole group of us got in the car and we drove over there. And I was only dead. And I had talked to these guys into coming to see Jerry Garcia with me. And we walked in, we ran right up to the front and we had an amazing show, great night. And when we were done, we were walking out and one of my buddies was always a little more aggressive than the others. And we saw a trailer. He goes, Hey, Garcia's probably in there. Let's go knock on the door and see if we can hang out with him. I was like, yeah, you know, I just, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, it's, it's not natural. We weren't invited in and, you know, what if he turns out to be an asshole? What's that going to do for me? So I'm always happy to hear when people, you know, get to meet, you know, the people who they really admire and find out that they're, that they're nice people. Yeah, it was, it was a really wonderful time. And I, I, again, I couldn't, you couldn't even tell you how not John was just so nice and so courteous with his time. It was really great. All, all the guys were, but I, you know, I really got to chat with John for a long time. And that's been my experience. I've been fortunate enough to meet many rock and rollers. I got to interview one time uh, John Bell. I've hung out with Dave Schools. Um, my son Matt got to meet Trey when he was 15 years old, and Trey couldn't have been nicer. They're really just like us. The musicians, they want to hang out. They want to talk. They want to have a cold beer and just relax and have fun. Um, and then they get on stage and do their job. So uh, anyway, and just to follow up on that, Jim, remember last summer when they played at Alpine Valley and they did that whole thing with uh, the guy who got engaged to his girlfriend. And, you know, they, they played Here Comes the Bride. And I had told you the backstory on that was that that guy was part of my son's posse. And uh, they, he and his girlfriend had missed the first night because they were at a wedding in Milwaukee. And they saw Fish in the bar after their performance at Alpine Valley that night. And they sat and they chatted with him for a while. And uh, Trey said, oh, you guys have been dating for a while. You're going to get engaged with Trey. And he says to Trey, if you play contact tomorrow night, I'm going to propose to my girlfriend. And they went to the show and, you know, my, 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 my son and his buddies, everybody all knew about it and they were all waiting to see what happened. And sure enough, Trey came out and he said, oh, I'm about to change somebody's life. And he, they played contact. And I thought, that's just amazing that, you know, that a guy would be that, you know, that he's not just saying hello to somebody. He's actually listening and following. And it looks like he was having a great time doing it. Yeah. How, how great is it? Oh, great, great stories, guys. And very informative, very informative uh, Deadhead Cannabis show. I see we're coming to the end of our time slot. Um, Larry or Henry, do you have any uh, final words of wisdom? Well, let me just say this really fast. Number one, um, thank you, Jim. You're, you're a kind uh, teacher that you gave me a break today when I hadn't done my homework, but I will be ready to go next time around on the uh, on the character zero. Um, number two, I'm all ready to talk about Barton Hall next time as well, and uh, we'll absolutely look forward to that. And Henry, let me just say thank you so much for coming on our show, and we're going to ask you before you leave what we ask all of our guests, and that is, Please tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you. Oh, sure. Um, well, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, I will say uh, I didn't know it was um, was part of the homework, but I've listened to that Cornell 77 show more times than I can even count. Um, the Scarlet Fire is just amazing. I, I love the shows with Donna on vocals, and so um, that was one of my all-time favorites. 
Um, but again, thanks so much for having me. This was really a lot of fun. I, you know, puts together my, my love of music and my love to be able to actually work in the cannabis industry, which, you know, 20 years ago, I would have never thought that I'd be actually doing that in a legal way. So, um, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, my firm is called Fortis Law Partners. Um, you can find us at www.fortislawpartners.com. You can also email me at henry at fortis, F-O-R-T-I-S, at law. Um, but again, thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. And, um, if you ever want me to come back, I'd be more than happy to Wonderful. All right. Jim, let me, Thank let you me just you. say this really fast. Anybody who hears uh, Barton Hall 1977 goes straight to the Scarlet Fire, they can run with us anytime they want. All right. Very good. Awesome. Um, Larry, you want to uh, sign us out? I will. Um, again, great show today. Thanks to our guest, uh, Henry Baskerville. Thanks to my co-host and uh, partner in crime, Jim Marty. Um, and thank you to all of you for listening. Um, keep enjoying the Grateful Dead. Keep enjoying cannabis. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.